the FIFA World Cup. There are a lot of people who would tell you it's the biggest sporting event in the world, even bigger than the Olympics. After all, football, or soccer as we call it in Canada, is often called the world's game. While the Olympics are a two-week festival of all kinds of sports, the World Cup has a singular focus. All eyes on the same sport at the same time, for a whole month. Something beautiful about the World Cup is that it only happens every four years. Even the Olympics, by virtue of having winter and summer games, come every two years. Of course, not in these COVID times, but anyway. So why is it special that the World Cup is so infrequent? Well, having fewer matches means the games we do get are that much more special. Each tournament coincides with a distinct time in your life. When I remember World Cup matches, I'm not just remembering sporting events. I remember the places I was when I watched them, the people I was with, the good times we shared. For me, the World Cup helps pinpoint moments in my life. Some days I can't tell you what I had for breakfast, but I can tell you how Switzerland tied Honduras. Nil-nil. I watched it at 7am, after a school night sleepover with four friends. We made a terrible movie the night before and went and volunteered at an organic farm that day. So wholesome. And thanks to the game, I can tell you it was June 25th, 2010. I can remember watching from a Euclid-lit hotel room the day after I went surfing for the first time as Senegal beat Poland. 2-1. In that game, there was a weird, controversial goal where an injured player was let back on the pitch at exactly the right time to get a breakaway. Senegal, Poland, Switzerland, Honduras. None of these teams even made it out of the group stage in the World Cups I'm talking about. And yet, these seemingly meaningless soccer matches, played by countries I've never even been to or I don't have any real connection with, they remain branded on my memory. That's what can make sports so special, having a personal connection to something so big and communal. If we only cared about who won the World Cup, well, most people would be disappointed every single time. Only eight countries have ever won the FIFA World Cup. All of them are from Europe or South America. And the truth is, in soccer especially, sometimes winning and losing can be pretty arbitrary. Every soccer fan knows the experience of the dreaded penalty shootout. Two teams, tied after 120 minutes. Five quick penalty kicks each decide who wins and who goes home. It's being compared to a coin flip. As much as almost everyone hates penalty shootouts, it's better than what happened to Spain in 1954. That year, Spain and Turkey were in a playoff match. The winner would qualify for the World Cup. The loser would go home. The match finished in a 2-2 tie. How did they break it? Well, a 14-year-old boy whose father worked at the stadium was blindfolded, and he had to draw lots. He picked Turkey, and for Spain, the dream was done. Now that's a silly way to lose. Sometimes, though, a team might suffer a fate even worse than losing to freak random chance. That brings us to today's story. Ghana at the 2010 FIFA World Cup. The national anthem of Ghana. Welcome to Champions in Our Hearts, a podcast where we talk about teams and players that didn't win sports things, but still deserve our love, attention, and admiration. Maybe as much or more than the teams or people who ultimately did win. Settle in for a rosy-eyed look back into the past. 
The 2010 World Cup took place in South Africa, the first and still only time that the tournament was played on African soil. Everyone was getting into the spirit. We had Waka Waka, This Time for Africa, the tournament's official song. Written, of course, by noted African pop star Shakira. Wait a minute. Missed opportunities aside, most people look back fondly on the 2010 World Cup. It was seen as a real success story after a lot of people had doubts about South Africa's ability to host the tournament. There were lots of great matches and stories and some memorable contributions to the pop culture of the time. You may remember the tournament for the Vuvuzela, the plastic horns that populated the stadiums. They made all of the matches you watched on TV sound like this. No match was safe from the Vuvuzela. They were compared to swarms of bees and immortalized in the pop culture memes of the day. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. And my Vuvuzela. As for the soccer itself, there were a handful of teams favored to win the tournament. British newspaper The Guardian asked a group of sports writers to make their predictions. All of the various journalists surveyed picked one of three teams to win the tournament. Brazil, who are almost always favorites to win any kind of soccer tournament they're in. Spain, who were the defending European champions. And Argentina, more of a dark horse pick by a couple of writers. They had had a poor qualifying and barely made it into the tournament, but they had a strong team on paper, led by superstar Lionel Messi, and their coach, the legendary Diego Maradona, was always making headlines for one reason or another. What about the host continent? While South Africa, the host nation, were very much viewed as underdogs, there was a sense of hope that at least one African nation would be able to provide a strong showing at the tournament. Twice before, African teams had made the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Cameroon in 1990, and Senegal in 2002. Both of these were tremendous success stories, teams that upset the previous World Cup champions in their opening matches. Cameroon beat Argentina in 1990 despite having two men sent off in that game, and Senegal beat France in 2002. Coming back to 2010 now, there were six African nations in the tournament. The hosts, South Africa, as well as Algeria, Cameroon, Nigeria, the Ivory Coast, and Ghana. Other than South Africa, who automatically qualified as the hosts, Ghana were actually the lowest-ranked African team in the tournament. At the 2006 World Cup, which was Ghana's first appearance in the tournament, they surprised a lot of people, making it to the round of 16 before losing to Brazil. This time, though, Ghana were in tough. They were in a group with Germany, Serbia, and Australia, three teams ranked above them. In fact, this group was seen by many as the toughest in the tournament, with the possible exception of Group G, which featured Brazil, Portugal, the Ivory Coast, and North Korea. Everyone assumed that Germany would win the group, and that it would be a dogfight between the other three teams for the next spot. Compounding things for Ghana was the fact that their star player, Michael Essien, who played for Chelsea in the English Premier League, would have to miss the tournament with an injury. Despite this adversity, Ghana was able to win their opening match against Serbia. It was a tight contest. Ghana was awarded a penalty kick following a Serbian handball in the 83rd minute. Asamoah Gyan scored from the penalty spot to give Ghana the only goal of the game. After the match, Ghana was confident and focused on the task ahead. And 
they were already feeling tremendous support from the crowds. Here's midfielder Steven Appiah right after the match against Serbia. It's really nice to see um, Africa United because um, you can see the South Africans, Africans, they are supporting the, the African teams. I think that it's a dream comes true because it's the first time that the World Cup is held in Africa and we feel, we feel special. That's why it's fantastic to see uh, South Africans, Nigerians, they, they supporting each other. In their next match against Australia, Ghana would fall behind 1-0 early on. Then, in the 25th minute, a Ghanaian shot hit the arm of an Australian on the goal line. For this handball, the referee awarded Ghana a penalty kick. The Australian player, Harry Kuehl, received a red card. Asamoah Gyan stepped up to the penalty spot and scored for the second time in as many games. Australia would have to play the rest of the game down a player. And despite several more chances at both ends, the game finished in a 1-1 draw. After two matches, Ghana had a win and a draw, good enough for four points. It turns out they were leading their group going into the final match of the stage. Their next opponent, however, was Germany, who were considered heavy favorites. Now, Germany had actually lost their last game to Serbia, something that could have made life more complicated for the Ghanaians. See, the top two teams in the group would advance. If Ghana could pull off an upset against Germany, or even managed to tie the game, they would be guaranteed to go through. But if Ghana lost to Germany, their fate was up in the air. Either Serbia or Australia could pass them with a win. A tight match with lots of chances for both teams ended in a Ghanaian loss. Mesut Uzel scored the only goal of the match for Germany in the 60th minute. At the same time, Australia had beaten Serbia. But because Ghana had a better goal difference, they would advance to the tournament's next round. So, after three matches, Ghana had made it through as the second-place finisher in their group. They hadn't scored a goal from open play. The two goals they had scored came from penalty kicks. It turned out that Ghana was the only African team to advance past the group stage. South Africa, Cameroon, Algeria, the Ivory Coast, and Nigeria had all been eliminated. In the round of 16, it was just Ghana. Their opponent would be the first-place finisher from Group G. Surprisingly, this ended up being the United States. Another great thing about the World Cup is that each team has its own story. Here are the cliff notes on the United States' tournament up to that point. The American side made it through top of their group, along with a somewhat dysfunctional England squad. When those two teams met, the match ended in a draw. The headline in the New York Post the next day read, USA wins, 1-1. The US had made the knockout round with a stoppage time goal against Algeria. If they hadn't scored that, they would have gone home. But now, here they were, first place finishers and Ghana's next opponent. The Ghanaians took an early lead when Kevin Prince Boateng scored in the fifth minute, four matches in, and Ghana finally had a goal from open play. In the second half, the US would equalize on a Landon Donovan penalty, sending the game into extra time. I'll let John Helm tell you what happened next. Now well, that's hooked forward. Here's a chase for Gian. He's one on two. It is Gian. He's in the area. He scores! Ghana are back in front. A goal of individual brilliance from a Samoa Gian. Thanks to Gian's goal, Ghana were through to the quarterfinals. They had equaled the best ever finish by an African team at the World Cup. Now they had the chance to smash that record. 
their quarterfinal opponents would be Uruguay. Although Uruguay were historically a great soccer nation, winning the first World Cup as well as the 1950 trophy, them being in the quarterfinals in 2010 could be seen as somewhat surprising. At a world ranking of 25th, they were actually the lowest ranked team that Ghana had gone up against in the tournament so far. The Uruguayan team was buoyed by their two star players, Captain Diego Forlan and young striker Luis Suarez. If you're a casual soccer fan, you may remember the name Luis Suarez as the guy who bit someone at the 2014 World Cup. Back in 2010, he was a rising star, and this World Cup would help skyrocket him to fame. Uruguay had finished at the top of their group, tying a France team that had a disastrous tournament, and then beating Mexico and South Africa. In the round of 16, they beat South Korea to set up the match against Ghana. It was a match between two teams few would have predicted to make the quarterfinals, and now, one of them would go on to the semis. Ghana were looking to make African history, Uruguay to recapture past glory. Whoever won the match would certainly be the biggest underdogs left in the tournament. It's July 2nd, 2010. I'm sitting in my dad's Sudbury apartment. It's hot and humid inside the single room. My dad is napping on his bed. My mom's sitting in the chair at the side of the room. The beaten up TV is tuned into CBC via rabbit ears. Now just a relic of a bygone age. I'm 15 and caught up in World Cup fever, ready to watch a match between two teams from countries I couldn't tell you the first thing about, except, of course, what I'd learned at the tournament so far. The game starts. In the dying seconds of a neck-and-neck -neck first half, Ghana takes the lead. It's a beautiful strike from Sully Montari, from well outside the penalty box, and it bounces on its way into the back of the net. The second half starts. My dad wakes up. The three of us watch on as Diego Forlan equalizes on a majestically struck free kick from outside the box. The game heads into extra time. The minutes tick by and nothing has been decided. Then, with just 20 seconds left, a foul is called outside the Uruguay box. On the ensuing free kick, there's a scramble in front of the Uruguay net. The ball is shot at the net. It's blocked. It bounces back out. It's shot again. The ball is heading into the net. Chaos. The referee blows the whistle. A red card. A look at the replay shows the ball heading into the net. Luis Suarez, Uruguay's rising star, on the goal line, swats it with his hand. This isn't one of those, the ball happened to hit his arm handballs you sometimes see in soccer. This was a full-blown, swinging his arm far away from his body to save a sure goal. As a result, Suarez is sent off with a red card. He leaves the pitch in tears. Ghana would receive a penalty, a golden chance to win the game on what would surely be the last kick of the match. Asamoa Gyan, who scored a penalty against Serbia, scored a penalty against Australia, would try and replicate that feat. I can still remember clearly commentator John Helms' call. Well, you couldn't have a more dramatic finish to a World Cup match than this one. Asamoah Gian has the opportunity to send Ghana into the semi-finals of the World Cup. And he hits the bar! The final whistle blew, and the game was still tied. We were headed for the dreaded penalty shootout. In the shootout, Asamoah Gian would score his penalty, 
but after two of his teammates had their kicks saved, Ghana was eliminated. The players were devastated on the pitch. Meanwhile, on the Uruguay side, Luis Suarez was brought back out and carted around as a hero. Oftentimes when there's a controversial finish to a sporting match, it's because the referee missed a call or made the wrong decision. Somehow, part of what made this game feel so tragic is that no one made any wrong decisions. Everything that happened was within the rules of the game, but it still feels so wrong. The ball was going into the net. The only reason Ghana didn't win is because the other team broke the most fundamental rule of soccer. You can't touch the ball with your hand. There might even be people out there who would say, Suarez didn't cheat, he did what he had to do. They might even say it was clever. He found an exploit in the rules that saved his team. My take is, if you think like that, you're kind of missing the point. If you have to break the most foundational rule of soccer to win a soccer game, then sure, you won, I guess, but should we celebrate that? Imagine if it was you and your friends, kids, playing soccer on the playground. No fans, no referee, just your team, the other team. Imagine the same scenario from the end of the game. The ball is going into the net, your opponent breaks the one rule of soccer you can't break, swats the ball with their hand to save a goal. You probably wouldn't go through some weird, made-up penalty nonsense, but even if you did, when recess was over, everyone would have known who should have won. Everyone would have known the other team cheated. In the days that followed the match, Luis Suarez wasn't exactly contrite. He said in an interview, quote, The hand of God now belongs to me. I made the best save of the tournament. Sometimes in training, I play as a goalkeeper. So it was worth it. End quote. Fun fact, in the FIFA video game, Suarez's goalie stats went up in the next year. So, Suarez becomes a national hero. Uruguay move on, and Ghana go home. With them, go dreams of an African team finally making the semi-finals of the World Cup. Uruguay lose the semi-final to the Netherlands, and the tournament is won by Spain, just like many people predicted. All these years later, people still look back at the Ghana-Uruguay match as the best one of the 2010 World Cup. It might be tempting to look back and think of what could have been, to think of the injustice of a historic run ended by a handball. Maybe if there's a lesson to be learned from the Ghana-Uruguay game, it's that sometimes we put too much emphasis on winning in sports. Who cares if you won, if you had to cheat to do it, especially if you were a jerk about it after? When we look back at Ghana in 2010, we shouldn't just remember the missed penalty. We should remember the joy, the dancing, the ecstasy of their extra time winner against the US. Steven Appiah, for some reason, having three cell phones when he got interviewed after that game. All of them blowing up. Of course, when I remember the game, I'll remember the small, warm room sitting there with my parents. How my dad confessed he was kind of cheering for Uruguay because they were losing when he woke up. I think of how something so global and communal can be so intimate, and personal. An ephemeral moment, crystallized forever into memory. I wonder what that moment is like for the Ghanaians who played in that match. And I want to tell them, while they may not have been champions on the field that day, they are champions in our hearts. Champions in our hearts.